So if you're new to Wednesday Night Bible Study, we've been going through, uh, we've recently begun an overview series. Uh, so what we've done is each Wednesday night, we've taken a, an entire book of the Bible and we've given a review of that book. And in the process of that, we've talked about some key themes or maybe key passages in the book itself. Um, we've, we've sort of done war against the idea that certain Old Testament passages can be less than exciting in our study of Leviticus a couple of weeks back. Um, we're up against the same enemy in Numbers. When you name a book Numbers, you know that's probably going to create perception that suggests not as interesting as other books in the Bible. And there are a lot of Numbers in, in, uh, in the book of Numbers. I, I, had a, I had an advisor at one point in PhD studies who wrote a, a huge commentary on the book of Numbers, and I always joked he was just about as interesting as a lecturer, as someone you would expect to write a commentary on the book of Numbers. But I want you to know that, that like we experienced in our study of Leviticus uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, that there is an excitement about what we find in the book of Numbers. If you learn how to approach Numbers, like learning how to approach Leviticus, it's really thrilling what we begin to find there in, in the book. In, in fact, you start out in Numbers, and you're accustomed to this. If you're a read-the-Bible-through-in-a-year person, every year you start that over, and usually enthusiasm lasts you about two numbers, and, and then maybe some of you get a little farther than that. If you're, if you're reading the chronological Bible study this year, how glad are you to be in the New Testament? Now, I, now I know that I'm not saying anything bad about the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. I'm always going to preach from the Old Testament. But I just got to tell you, when I, when I hit that app and it said Mark 1-1, I just sort of said amen to that. I can go for that, you know. Um, but, but numbers, if you learn how to look at it, can be really, can be really exciting. So you have in chapter 1 this genealogy. And, and then again in chapter 26, a genealogy. And those genealogies are, are really there in, in, a, in a pretty small space, but, but then the details of the genealogy are scattered out over the next several chapters, so it creates the impression that, that really you have these long genealogies there. It's really just expansion on a, a, a sort of a, a much more brief genealogy in chapter 1. And what they're, what they're telling you in Genealogy 1 and Genealogy 2, chapter 1 and chapter 26, in, in chapter 1, what you have there is a census of the old generation. Now, what I mean by old generation is that generation that came out of Egypt through the Red Sea waters. They came out, entered into the wilderness, and as we'll see in our study of Numbers tonight, they rebelled against God, they were disobedient to God, and because of that, in the wilderness, God said, you will not get to go to the promised land. In fact, even to Moses, he says, you will see it, and Moses does see it in the end of Numbers from the plains of Moab, he's able to look across to the promised land, but Moses is never allowed, nor is his generation ever allowed to enjoy the fruit of the promised land. What you have in Numbers chapter 26 is a census of the new generation. As the old generation is dying off, that generation that lives under the curse of God that says you cannot enter the promised land, a new generation is being raised up. And it's that new generation in chapter 26 
that are the audience for what Moses preaches in the book of Deuteronomy, which comes next, and the new, and the new generation that are uh, listed in that census in Numbers 26 are the very people that Joshua will lead into the promised land as the Jordan rivers part and the people of Israel begin to conquer the land that flows with milk and honey. So there's a real flow that's happening here. This is a period of transition. Numbers is about transition. Numbers is ultimately about the fact that God's people fouled it up in the wilderness because they would not obey God. And in spite of their fouling it up, God persevered with his people graciously and provided a new day, a new opportunity, a new occasion for them to enter into the land that flowed with milk and honey. To get to the promised land, God would raise up a new generation. So uh, thinking about how we could understand or sort of frame our study of the book of Numbers, we can really hang everything on three great complaints. And we'll look at specific passages where these complaints come up, but they're repetitive. It's, it's, it's more than once in two out of three cases that these uh, complaints are uh, mentioned in the book of Numbers. You could say Numbers is about complaining, and it is a book about complaining. The problem that that old generation had when they got out into the wilderness is that they complained all the time. In fact, if you, if you look at Numbers 1 through 10, there's real optimism on the part of the people. The tabernacle is in their, presen- in, their, in their presence in the midst of the people of Israel. That's an indication that God is with them. Things are on the way up. God has taken them out of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea waters. He's providing for them in a variety of ways. He's demonstrated his grace and that he's provided them with the law. I mean, things look really, really good all the way through chapter 10. But as soon as they get out into the wilderness they begin to grumble. It's the old adage where the, the, the stress of the situation is really telling the true character of the people. The heart of the people is revealed by the difficulty of their experience in the wilderness, and they don't really pass the test very well. Let's look first at Numbers chapter 12. In, in Numbers 12, the complaint, as it's listed in your notes, and I've taken a pretty basic approach to the outlines that you're receiving. I'm just giving you the passage that we're going to look at or the passages and I'm giving you plenty of space to make notes under that and trying to provide you with enough general introductory information that maybe you can file these away in your Bible or a notebook and revisit them in the future should you need to be reminded of the content of these books. In in Numbers 12, Miriam, the sister of Moses, and Aaron, the brother of Moses, complain about Moses. Now, in the context of numbers, they they almost stand as figureheads for all of the people. Miriam and Aaron are not the only people to complain about Moses. In fact, everyone complains about Moses. I think pastors could be helped by looking at the example that Moses sets in that most of the time, Moses doesn't take personally the complaints that are levied against them. Rather, he brings them before God. He he sees them as they are. And in spite of their grumbling and their groaning and their constant complaining against Moses, there's a scene in Numbers where Moses is willing to stand between the coming wrath of God and the people of God who've so often grumbled against him 
in order that God's wrath against them would stop. In other words, he risked his very life for the people who are constantly complaining about his leadership. It's really an impressive example. Now, this is a family squabble in chapter 12. I, 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 think, I think the details will resonate with many of you. In chapter 12, in verse 1, the Bible says, Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses because of the Cushite woman he married, for he had married a Cushite woman. They said, does the Lord speak only through Moses? Does he not speak through us? In other words, who needs Moses? He's no better than we are. Now, if, if you're looking for the key that unlocks the mystery of the problem with Moses marrying a Cushite woman, the Cushite people were the people who lived in the south of, of Egypt. Essentially, and this will be probably roundly understood in, in the culture that many of you came from, what, Moses, what Miriam and, and Aaron are angry with is essentially that Moses has married a black woman. And they complain against him. They groan against him. Now, before you uh, feel as though there's some justification for that kind of insanity, you ought to look further into Numbers 12 where Miriam is stricken with leprosy because of her complaining against Moses for the decision that he makes. But that's essentially the complaint. And if anywhere in the world we could understand that, we can understand it here in the Deep South in the state of Mississippi. Here, here, here is a family conflict over a marriage decision that Moses has made. And they grumble and they say, is Moses the only one who speaks for the Lord? The only one through whom the Lord has spoken? In other words, we have the same prophetic ability that Moses has. Look at us. He's no better than us. Now, the, the problem with their grumbling is that verse 2 tells us in the last sentence that God heard it. Now, it's one thing to grumble. It's another thing when God takes note of our grumbling. Miriam and Aaron grumble, and God takes note of their grumbling. In verse 4, the Bible says, uh, well, verse 3, we can't skip over. Moses was a very humble man, more so than any man on the face of the earth. You know, Moses wrote numbers under the inspiration of God's Spirit. That must have been a verse that shook his humility. It would have been for me anyway. Verse 4 says, suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, you three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them went out, and the Lord descended in the pillar of cloud, stood at the entrance of the tent, summoned Aaron and Miriam. And when the two of them came forward, he said, listen to what I say. If there's a prophet among you from the Lord, I make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. But it's not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. I speak with him directly, openly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. So why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The Lord's anger burned against them, and he left. God calls a come-to-Jesus meeting with Moses and his brother and sister. And, and he says, I, I want to tell you about the difference between Moses and you, Miriam, and Aaron. The, the difference is, I may be pleased to give you a vision or a dream. You may have the capacity to prophesy. And at different times, Miriam and Aaron were the spokespersons for God in, among the people of Israel. But the situation is much different with Moses. Mo Moses doesn't see in visions and dreams. It's different with Moses. God says, I speak with him directly, 
openly and not in riddles, he sees the form of the Lord. Now that statement may not sound very familiar to you, but it's an important passage in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 3, the Bible says, essentially, that Jesus is better than Moses. And that the marked difference between the ministry of Moses and the ministry of Jesus is that although Moses is faithful in the house, it's a direct quote of Numbers 12, that Jesus is the builder of the house. Now, if you're not careful, when you go to that passage in Hebrews, you'll think that the author of Hebrews is trying to minimize the significance of Moses' ministry, but that's not the case at all. Here, God makes it abundantly clear that Moses is prophet par excellence. He is the fountainhead of all prophecy that comes after his ministry. You realize that? Everything that the prophets say in the prophetic books of the Old Testament are just expository sermons on the prophetic message of Moses in the first five books of the Bible. You ever thought about that? That's all they are. And even in the historical books of the Old Testament that come after Deuteronomy, it is the code, the doctrine, the theological principles that Moses lays out for us in Deuteronomy that provide the framework for our understanding of the history of Israel as God's chosen people. Moses is the fountainhead of all Old Testament prophecy. The Bible makes it clear he's an exceptional person and that his uh, vision or, or his ability to prophesy is not received through visions and dreams. He speaks with God openly. And yet, in spite of, of his superiority as a prophet, Hebrews is crystal clear that Jesus is far superior to that. Because Jesus has not just seen God, Jesus is God. Jesus has not just been faithful in the house, Jesus built the house. He's not just a creaturely being subordinate to the authority of God. He is the creator himself who fashioned the world as we know it, who pieced Moses together in the very foundation of the world. And in spite of Moses' place in the history of God's people, they grumbled and complained against him. Verse 10 says, As the cloud moved away from the tent, Miriam's skin suddenly became diseased as white as snow. And when Aaron turned toward her, he saw that she was diseased and said to Moses, My Lord, please don't hold against us the sin we've so foolishly committed. Please don't be like a dead baby whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses does what he always does. Moses cried out to the Lord, God, please heal her. And the Lord answered Moses, If her father had merely spit in her face, wouldn't she remain in disgrace for seven days? Let her be confined outside the camp for seven days. After that, she may be brought back in. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people didn't move on until Miriam was brought back. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. The next scene in Numbers, Numbers chapters 13 and 14, is home to the second complaint that you see listed in your outline. Only this time, the complaint doesn't come from Moses or the people that Moses leads. Guess who the next complaint comes from? Any ideas? The next complaint comes from God. <laughs> Here God says, how long must I endure this evil community that keeps complaining about me? 
Now, the situation is in chapter 13 that Moses is assembling a group of spies who are to go down to the promised land and they are to spy it out. I think everyone knows, whether you're a student of the Bible or even a believer in the Bible, uh, everyone has some level of familiarity with this whole account of the spies going over and they see that they are giants in the land and they come back and they're discouraged and they, they do not cross over. That's exactly what's happening in Numbers chapter 13. He assembles a team of 12 spies. There's a couple of brothers named Caleb and Joshua who are part of the spy team. And they go over to the promised land, the land that God had said flowed with milk and honey, and they spy it out. And they come back to bring a report of what they've observed to Moses. Only the report they bring is not positive. In fact, in verse 26 of chapter 13, the Bible says the men went back to Moses, Aaron, and the entire Israelite community in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back a report for them and the whole community and showed them the fruit of the land. Now, we didn't read the passage about the fruit of the land, but they have such a cluster of grapes that they carry it on a pole between the shoulders of two men as they march back to the camp. In verse 27, they reported to Moses, We went into the land where you sent us. It's flowing with milk and honey. And here's some of its fruit. However, this is where they go astray. The people living in the land are strong. The cities are large and fortified. We saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites are living in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live by the sea along the Jordan. Caleb quieted the people in the presence of Moses and said, We must go up and take possession of the land because we can certainly conquer it. But the men who'd gone up with him responded, We can't go up against the people because they're stronger than we are. So they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land they had scouted. The land we passed through to explore is one that devours its inhabitants and all the people saw in it men of great size. We even saw the Nephilim, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. We, to ourselves, we seem like grasshoppers, and we, or they seem like to ourselves, we seem like grasshoppers, and we must have seemed the same to them. We've gone to the land, and, and here's our report. It's great land. It's everything God said it would be, but we can't have it because there are giants in the land, there are Amalekites in the land, there's Hittites, there's Jebusites, there's all these people that stand in our way. The report is an expression of their lack of faith and trust in what God has promised them. That's the issue. The issue is not that they've made reasonable observations about the land. There's no question about the difficulty of the task that lies before them. There's no human reasonable answer as to how they could take that land. The problem is God has already promised that they could and would have it. There's some back and forth about how this unfolds and what the implications are of their report. Caleb and Joshua persist in their confidence that they can go and, and take the land, uh, but it's too late. The damage is done. They, they spread this message among the people of Israel. Um, there, there's an unwillingness on the part of the people to go in spite of the encouragement of Joshua and Caleb. And then in chapter 14, verse 26, the Bible says there, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, how long must I endure this evil community that keeps complaining about me? I've heard the Israelites' complaints that they make against me Tell them, as surely as I live, this is the Lord's declaration. I will do to you exactly as I heard you say. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness. All of you were registered in the census, the entire number, 
you 20 years old or more, because you've complained about me, I swear that none of you will enter the land I promised to settle you in except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. Everybody in the first sentence is dead. Only Caleb and Joshua will be permitted to see the new, uh, the, the land that flows with milk and honey personally, to see the success, the victory of Israel as they enter in. And the Israelites do what, what we always do. When we foul things up and the judgment of God comes, then we try to run real quick and make it right again, hoping that somehow God will determine retroactively to undo the consequences of the dumb thing that we've done. So they hear this word of judgment from God. And in, instead, of, instead of embracing the judgment of God against them, which was already set, it had already been determined, they decide, no, what we might ought to do is get together some men and go down and see if we really can take the land. And so in verses 39 and following, they go down without the blessing of God and they're, they're, they're struck down in battle there. there there's, there's no more opportunity for undoing uh, the dreadful consequences of their decision to balk when God instructed them to go. You see this in a number of places in the Scripture. Uh, I was looking at Jeremiah the other night. Remember Jeremiah prophesies of the Babylonian captivity. It says Nebuchadnezzar is coming and, and they didn't believe that he was coming at first. And then it began to be clear that the Babylonians were coming. And now they, they sort of wanted to bring Jeremiah back in. Now give us a word. Can you, we threw you in a ditch, but can you help us out now? Because it seems like what you prophesied is, is, is really going to happen for us now. They wanted him to say something or to do something that would alleviate the coming of God's judgment. And Jeremiah says, essentially, what you need to do is get out of Sin City. Get out of, and Sin City is not Las Vegas in Jeremiah's prophecy. It's the city of Jerusalem. Because God's judgment against this city has been determined. It has been set. It has been fixed. There are times when the consequences of our sin have been set. They are fixed. In the here and now, there is no recourse for us which is why the gospel promise of forgiveness is so precious, why the gift of everlasting life is so sweet. Because in spite of the fact that there can be no turning back of the hands of time in the here and now, there is always, everywhere there's a remorseful heart, there's a gracious and forgiving God who stands ready to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness as we confess our sin. It really is a beautiful thing, isn't it? God has done for us in another dimension, in all of eternity, what, what, what simply could not be done even in the here and now. It's a tremendous stroke of grace. So it's kind of interesting here that the second complaint that we look at here is God grumbling against the people, but in a sense, that's exactly what happens in uh, Numbers 13 and 14. Here's, here's one more. Th this is a constant refrain in Exodus, and I'm, I'm going to leave out some stuff that I'd really like to say about this notion because we're going to deal with it on Sunday mornings. But the people are constantly asking, why have you led us up from Egypt to bring us to this evil place? God, you could have just left us where we were in Egypt. We were better off back there. Food was better. There was plenty of water. And they start doing what we always do. 
when the going gets tough, we always remember things better than they were in reality. You have to be very careful about your pre-conversion lives. You can find yourself among old friends sometimes and reminiscing about those uh, so-called good old days. And, and if you're not really careful, you'll remember them in a much better light than, than reality allows. You should have just left us in Egypt. Things would have been much better for us there. In fact, in chapter 20 and verse 5, when they're thirsty and there's no water, that's where they make their claim. You, you, you've led us out here to this uh, evil place and we would have been better off there. I'll talk, we'll deal with some of this when we get to the actual exodus. And, and so if there's some repetition when we get there, you'll have to forgive me. But I think this is an important principle. The, the people are, are barely out of Egypt and they're already saying, ah, we should have just stayed there. We're better off if we were there. And, and, and they, what they're wanting to do is to revert back to their slavery. You got that? This, this default to our slavishness. Let's go back to that. Like some, some, some revisionist history of, the, of pre-Civil War America wants to celebrate or justify slavery in the South by noting that there were slaves who desired to return to their masters. That really shouldn't be a surprise when that happens. That's human nature. Even in our Christian life, we tend to revert back to our slavishness. We will go back when the going gets tough to the things that enslave us. The sin that enslaved you in your pre-conversion life. If you're not really careful, when the going gets tough in your Christian life, you'll revert back to those old patterns of life. You'll go back to the things that once enslaved you. You'll return to your bondage because there's a comfort and a familiarity with our slavery that we don't enjoy during seasons of pressure or stress in the valley, as we said Sunday morning. You'll revert back. You'll go back. You'll remember it better than it was. And only after going back and being reminded of the weight of the change you bear in your slavery will you realize what a foolish mistake you've made in jeopardizing the peace you have in Jesus to revert back to those old slavish ways. They're out there and they get just a little thirsty. You know, God wouldn't have let them thirst to death, you know? And they said, we, just, we should have never left. We should have, we should have went back. I, I imagine because of their constant grumbling that it was never as grave a situation as, as what they describe it. I see the Israelites like my children on a short road trip. You can barely get out of the driveway, and they're, they're starving to death. They won't make it until we get their famished. We need to stop, make sure they survive until we get to the next stop. That's sort of the way I see the people of Israel. And they say, God, why would you bring us out here? And God does something incredibly gracious here. He, he, he provides for them water from the rock. And it's here that Moses makes his great mistake of acting in defiance against God, and he strikes the rock. He acts in a way that's out of accord with what God had prescribed for him there. God provided water, gushing water from the rock of Meribah for the people of Israel. But for Moses' disobedience, for his rebellion, he was told that he too would not enter into the promised land. He wouldn't see the land that God had given them. In the New Testament, specifically in the Corinthian letters, 
Paul does something really interesting with this passage. He says, with regards to the rock of Meribah, he says, that rock is Jesus. Now, we could talk about that for the rest of this evening. We won't, but it's sufficient to note that the rock from whom the fountains of living waters flow is Jesus Christ. And the interesting thing is that in order that we could drink of that fountain, the rock was stricken on our behalf. The blows of sinful humanity ensured that we, even as Gentile people, could drink freely of the fountain of life. Now, isn't God gracious? Here in Moses' act of rebellion against God, Moses acts in defiance. And God takes Moses' defiant act and quenches the thirst of his people, even in his rebellion. Now, how incredible is that? Is that not what God has done for us through Jesus? Through the rebellion of those folks, Jews and Gentiles alike who conspired together uh, to see to it that Jesus would be killed, that he would die for our sin. E even in their act of rebellion against God, he was pleased, God was pleased to open a fountain of everlasting life that we could drink freely this way. He's awfully good. I, I, hope, I hope that one of the things that we'll be able to accomplish in our study of the Old Testament is, is sort of shaping and refining our ability to see hints and foreshadowings of Jesus and all that he does for us. Truly, the law and the prophets are fulfilled in Christ. Jesus says, the scriptures testify of me. And he wasn't talking about the New Testament. I, I, want, I want you to look for those sorts of things. And the New Testament gives us great aid in doing so. Aren't you glad for a rock from whom we drink freely?